0: Without further ado, here is your earnings call.
1: Hello, and welcome to Citi's second quarter 2019 earnings review. Today, we are joined by City's Chief Executive Officer, Mike Corbett, Chief Financial Officer, Mark Mason. Today's call will be hosted by Elizabeth Lynn, Interim Head of City Investor Relations. We ask that you please hold all questions until the completion of the formal remarks at which time you will be given instructions for the question and answer session. Also, as a reminder, this conference call is being recorded today. If you have any objections, please disconnect at this time. Ms. Lynn, you may begin. Thank you, operator. Good morning, and thank you all for joining us. On our call today, our CEO Mike Corbett will speak first. Then Mark Mason, our CFO, will take you through the earnings presentation, which is available for download on our website Citigroup.com. Afterwards, we will be happy to take questions. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that today's presentation may contain forward-looking statements which are based on management's current expectations and are subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. Actual results and capital and other financial conditions may differ materially from these statements due to a variety of factors, including the precautionary statements referenced in our discussion today and those included in our SEC filings, including, without limitation, the risk factor section of our 2018 Form 10-K. With that said, let me turn it over to Mike.
2: Thank you, Lizzie. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we reported earnings of $4.8 billion for the second quarter of 2019. Our earnings per share of $1.95 were 20% higher than one year ago. We increased our return on assets year over year to 97 basis points and generated a return on tangible common equity of 11.9% over 100 basis points better than last year. We delivered positive operating leverage for the 11th straight quarter and improved our efficiency while again growing loans and deposits. These results stem from strong execution of our strategy across our lines of business and show the benefits of our global franchise and product mix. Global consumer banking saw 4% revenue growth overall in constant dollars with a contribution from every region. In North America, that was led by continued strong performance in branded cards, and again, we saw encouraging momentum in deposit growth, which accelerated from the first quarter. Internationally, net income was up 25%. In Mexico, performance was driven by good underlying revenue growth, expense management, and credit discipline. In Asia, higher deposit revenues and a recovery in investment revenues drove growth in the region. In our institutional clients group, we delivered continued growth overall in our steadier transaction and accrual type businesses, showing the strength of our global client network. While we saw pressure in our market-sensitive businesses reflecting the broader industry uh, even, uh, even in products like investment banking where we continue to gain share. During the quarter, we received a non-objection from the Federal Reserve for our 2019 CCAR submission. That means we will meet the goal set at Investor Day to return at least $60 billion in capital over three CCAR cycles. Our $21.5 billion capital return will increase the three-year total to $62.3 billion and includes raising our dividend to $0.51 and continuing to buy back shares of common stock at roughly the same level as last year's plans. These buybacks have reduced our common shares outstanding by over 10 percent in the last year alone and helped drive our tangible book value per share up 10 percent over that same time period. Given the current environment and market conditions, we'll stay flexible with a focus on making steady progress towards our financial targets through client-led growth and resource discipline, including balance sheet, credit, and expenses. As we look to the second half, we'll continue to take a close look at our capacity to make sure that we're right-sized for the operating environment. However, we won't change our commitment to safety and soundness and to making investments necessary to strengthen our infrastructure and control environment. Client engagement remains strong, and we continue to enhance our capabilities to serve our clients the way they want to be served across our network. That said, there remains uncertainty with respect to the economic, market, and rate environment, but I think we've shown that our franchise can manage through these by focusing on the things that we can control. I'll now turn it over to Mark, and then we'd be happy to take your questions. Mark. Thank you, Mike, and good morning, everyone. Starting
3: on slide three, Net income of $4.8 billion in the second quarter grew 7% from last year, including a roughly $350 million pre-tax gain on our investment in trade web, which benefited EPS by 12 cents per share. Excluding the gain, EPS of $1.83 grew by 12%, mostly driven by a decline in our average diluted shares outstanding, as well as a lower tax rate. Revenues of $18.8 billion grew 2% from the prior year, reflecting the trade web gain, as well as solid results in consumer and overall growth in our accrual businesses in ICG. However, this growth was partially offset by lower market-sensitive revenues in ICG, as well as mark-to-market losses on loan hedges in our corporate lending portfolio. Expenses declined 2% year-over-year as volume growth along with continued investments in the franchise, were more than offset by efficiency savings and the wind down of legacy assets, resulting in our 11th consecutive quarter of positive operating leverage. And cost of credit increased, driven by volume growth and seasoning, as well as a normalization in credit trends in our corporate loan portfolio, while overall credit quality remained stable. Our return on assets was 97 basis points for the quarter, and we generated an ROTCE of 11.9%. Our effective tax rate for the quarter was 22%, slightly better than our outlook. We expect our tax rate to be between 22% and 23% for the back half of the year. In constant dollars, end-of-period loans grew 3% year-over-year to $689 billion, as 4% growth in our core businesses was partially offset by the wind-down of legacy assets and deposits grew 5% with contribution from both our consumer and institutional franchises. Looking at results for the first half of 2019, we saw continued momentum in consumer as well as the accrual businesses in ICG, which helped to offset the headwinds of lower market sensitive revenues, along with the continued wind down of legacy assets. And while we did benefit from the trade web gain, This was largely offset by the impact of mark-to-market losses on loan hedges in our corporate lending portfolio. We delivered positive operating leverage with a 3% decline in expenses. EPS grew by 15% and our ROTCE was 11.9% for the first half. Turning now to each business, slide four shows the results for global consumer banking in constant dollars. The consumer business showed continued momentum in the second quarter. Revenues grew 4% with contribution from all regions, while expenses were up 1%, driving continued growth in operating margin and earnings. For the first half of the year, excluding the Hilton gain last year, we generated 4% consumer revenue growth on flat expenses, resulting in 8% growth in operating margin and 13% growth in net income. Slide five shows the results for North America consumer in more detail. Second quarter revenues of $5.2 billion were up 3% from last year. During the quarter, we continued to enhance our digital capabilities and launch new products to lay the foundation for a more integrated, multi-product relationship model. Our deposit momentum continued to improve as net deposit inflows in the first half of 2019 more than doubled compared with last year. We are growing deposits with both new and existing retail bank customers in and out of our branch footprint and through both digital and traditional channels. In digital, we further enhanced our account opening process and launched new products designed to deepen our client relationships, including relationship-based offers that leverage our proprietary thank you and double cash rewards across both card and deposit products. We generated more than a billion dollars in digital deposit sales in the second quarter, bringing our total for the first half to over two billion dollars. Nearly two-thirds of these deposit sales were outside of our existing branch footprint and of were with card customers who previously did not have a retail banking relationship with us. Results from our new digital lending product, FlexLoan, also continue to be positive following its launch in January as loan originations more than tripled from the first to the second quarter while maintaining a strong credit profile. And we will continue to roll out new features and products in the second half of the year. So again, while many of these initiatives are still new, we feel good about our progress. Turning now to the results of the individual businesses Retail banking revenues of $1.4 billion were roughly flat year-over-year. Excluding mortgage, retail banking revenues grew 1% as the benefit of stronger deposit volumes was partially offset by lower deposit spreads in commercial banking. Average deposit growth accelerated to 2% year-over-year. And looking at deposits and assets under management in aggregate, we grew customer balances by 4%. Mortgage revenues were largely stable again this quarter on a sequential basis, but declined year-over-year, mostly reflecting higher funding costs. Turning to branded cards, revenues of $2.2 billion grew 7% year-over-year. Client engagement remained strong with purchase sales up 8%, and we continue to generate growth in interest-earning balances this quarter, up about 10%. This growth in interest-earning balances drove a year-over-year improvement in our net interest revenue as a percentage of loans, or NIR percent, to 896 points this quarter. Looking forward, we would expect to remain broadly around this level of spreads as we look to maintain our current mix of interest-earning to non-interest-earning balances. Average loan growth improved to 2 percent this quarter as we saw a smaller drag from promotional balances in the prior year. And we expect loan growth to continue to improve as we go into the back half of the year. Finally, retail services revenues of $1.6 billion grew 1%, driven by loan growth partially offset by higher contractual partner payments. Total expenses for North America consumer were up 2% year over year, as higher volume-related expenses and investments were largely offset by efficiency savings. Turning to credit, net credit losses grew by 12% year-over-year, reflecting loan growth and seasoning in both cards' portfolios. Card NCO rates were essentially flat quarter-over-quarter, and consistent with the pattern seen in prior years, we expect card NCO rates in the second half of the year to be lower than the first half of the year. Our performance year-to-date is in line with our full NCL rate outlook for both branded cards and retail services at 300 to 325 basis points and 500 to 525 basis points, respectively. On slide six, we show results for international consumer banking in constant dollars. Second quarter revenues of $3.3 billion grew 4%. In Latin America, total consumer revenues grew 3% or 5% on an underlying basis, excluding the impact of the sale of our asset management business last year. Loan and deposit growth was muted in Mexico again this quarter, reflecting the current environment where we are seeing a deceleration in GDP growth and a slowdown in overall industry volumes. But importantly, we are managing expenses carefully and maintaining credit discipline in order to preserve profitability and returns, as seen again this quarter in our strong EBIT growth year over year. Turning to Asia, consumer revenues grew 5% year over year in the second quarter, or 3% excluding a one-time gain, mostly driven by higher deposit revenues, as well as a recovery in investment revenues. We continue to see strong growth in our underlying wealth management drivers in Asia, with 10% growth in Citigold clients and 7% growth in net new money versus last year. In total, operating expenses were down 1% in the second quarter, as efficiency savings more than offset investment spending and volume-driven growth, and cost of credit was down 3%, reflecting a smaller LLR build relative to the prior year. Slide seven shows our global consumer credit trends in more detail. Credit continued to be favorable again this quarter, with NCL and delinquency rates broadly stable across the regions. Turning now to the institutional clients group on slide eight, revenues of $9.7 billion were roughly flat in the second quarter and down 3 percent, excluding the trade web gain, as continued momentum in the accrual businesses was more than offset by lower market-sensitive revenues and the negative impact from mark-to-market losses on loan hedges as credit spreads further tightened in the quarter. Total banking revenues of $5.1 billion were down 1 percent. Treasury and trade solutions revenues of $2.4 billion were up 4 percent, as reported, and 7 percent in constant dollars, with growth in deposits, transaction volumes, and trade spreads, reflecting continued strong client engagement. Investment banking revenues of $1.3 billion declined 10% from last year while outperforming the market wallet. The decline was primarily driven by a strong prior year performance in M&A, partially offset by continued strength in debt underwriting. Private bank revenues of $866 million were up 2%, reflecting growth with both new and existing clients, which drove higher lending, deposits, and AUM volumes, partially offset by spread compression. And corporate lending revenues of $538 million were down 9%, reflecting lower spreads and higher hedging costs. Total markets and security services revenues of $4.7 billion were down 4% from last year, excluding the trade web gain as growth in security services was more than offset by the decline in our markets' businesses, where the environment has been challenging and investor client activity has remained muted. Excluding TradeWeb, fixed income revenues declined four percent year over year, reflecting the challenging trading environment, particularly in rates. Equities revenues were down nine percent, reflecting lower client activity in cash equities and prime brokerage, partially offset by strong corporate client activity in derivatives. And security services revenues were up 3% on a reported basis and 7% in constant dollars, reflecting higher rates as well as higher client activity. Total operating expenses of $5.4 billion declined 2% year over year as efficiency savings more than offset investments in volume-driven growth. And cost of credit, was $103 million this quarter, reflecting a normalization in credit trends in our corporate loan portfolio. Credit quality remained stable and total non accrual loans declined both sequentr- sequentially and on a year over year basis. Looking at the first half of the year in ICG, our operating margin improved by 1 percent as solid contributions from our growing higher returning network businesses, most notably TTS and security services, were largely offset by the decline in our market sensitive businesses. We're focused on continuing to build upon the strength that we are seeing in our network businesses by making it easier for our large multinational clients to do more business around the world. We're investing in technology to further digitize and improve our onboarding processes enhance our client-facing platforms, and roll out new capabilities across the franchise as we support the growth in cross-border flows that we are seeing with our multinational clients. And we have a strong pipeline of initiatives going forward. Slide nine shows the results for corporate other. Revenues of $532 million increased 1% from last year as higher treasury revenues and gains were largely offset by the wind-down of legacy assets. Expenses were down 20%, mostly reflecting the wind-down. And the pre-tax income was $73 million this quarter, somewhat better than our prior outlook. Looking ahead, we would still expect a modest pre-tax quarterly loss in corporate other for the remainder of 2019. Slide 10 shows our net interest revenue and margin trends. In constant dollars, total net interest revenue of nearly $12 billion this quarter grew by roughly $450 million year over year, reflecting higher rates, loan growth, and a favorable loan mix, as well as higher trading-related NIR, along with the absence of the FDIC surcharge. On a sequential basis, net interest revenue grew by roughly $230 million, largely reflecting higher trading-related NIR, along with one additional day in the quarter. However, net interest margin declined five basis points sequentially, as the benefit of higher revenues was more than offset by higher cash balances, reflecting strong deposit growth in the quarter. In the first half of 2019, our net interest revenue grew by 6% or roughly $1.3 billion year-over-year in constant dollars. Looking ahead to the remainder of the year, as a reminder, when we set our NIR outlook for 2019 back in January, we were assuming one U.S. rate increase in mid-2019. But the expected benefit of the rate hike had been relatively small. As of last quarter, We had taken that rate hike out of our assumptions, and now we recognize that we may begin to see rate cuts as early as later this month. But keep in mind that the estimated impact of each rate cut remains relatively small. We continue to estimate that each 25 basis point cut in U.S. rates impacts revenues by roughly $50 million on a quarterly basis. But of course, this will depend on the competitive environment for deposits and other factors. So the rate environment continues to evolve, but we are managing our rate sensitivity carefully, and we continue to expect to generate net interest revenue growth this year of about 4% in constant dollars, which equates to roughly $2 billion of growth, as we've discussed on previous earnings calls. Turning to non-interest revenue on a full-year basis, we continue to expect total non-interest revenue to come in roughly flat to the prior year. In the first half of 2019, non-interest revenue declined by close to $900 million, all of which you saw in the first quarter. This decline was mostly driven by the gain on the sale of the Hilton portfolio in the prior year, as well as a very strong prior year comparison in equities in the first quarter, along with the drag from mark-to-market losses on loan hedges. In the second quarter, while we saw pressure in underlying markets revenues, it was entirely offset by the trade web gain, so non-interest revenues were flat to last year. Looking ahead to the second half of 2019, as a reminder, in consumer, we will be comparing to the third quarter of 2018 when we had a $250 million gain on the sale of our asset management business in Mexico. However, we should be able to more than offset this headwind with organic growth across the rest of our accrual and consumer businesses. And we should see a favorable comparison in markets revenues in the fourth quarter, even if investor client activity remains muted, similar to what we've seen so far this year. On slide slide 11, we we show our key capital metrics. In the second quarter, our tangible book value per share increased 10% year-over-year to $67.64, driven by net income and the lower share count, and our CET1 capital ratio was stable sequentially at 11.9% as net income was offset by $4.6 billion of total common share buybacks and dividends. To conclude, while the revenue environment has proved challenging for some of our businesses, we made continued progress in the first half of 2019. From a revenue perspective, we're seeing solid momentum across the consumer franchise and continued growth in our accrual businesses in ICG. And while we've seen pressure in some of our market-sensitive businesses, results have generally reflected the broader industry. We continue to believe we can generate modest year-over-year revenue growth in 2019, driven by continued growth in net interest revenue and more stable trends in non-interest revenue versus 2018. On the expense side, our productivity savings have exceeded our incremental investments by roughly $300 million so far this year putting us on track to achieve the upper end of the $500 to $600 million in incremental net savings we had expected for full year 2019. Expenses were down year over year in the first half, and we believe that was prudent given the revenue headwinds we faced. Looking ahead, we will maintain this expense discipline relative to the revenue environment while continuing to make essential investments in the franchise including investments in infrastructure and controls. But we do expect expenses to be lower on a sequential basis from the first half to the second half of the year. And while the operating environment is uncertain, we will continue to look to all of our return levers with a continued focus on our full-year ROTCE target of 12% for 2019. Before we go into Q&A, Let me spend a few moments on our outlook for the third quarter specifically. In ICG, we expect continued year-over-year growth in our accrual businesses as we continue to serve our target clients across our global network. And markets and investment banking revenues should reflect the overall market environment. On the consumer side, in North America, solid revenue growth should continue, driven by U.S.-branded cards. In Asia, we expect continued year-over-year revenue growth. And in Mexico, as I just mentioned, we'll be comparing to the third quarter last year, which included a gain on the sale of our asset management business. On an underlying basis, similar to the results seen so far this year, revenue growth will likely remain somewhat muted, although we expect continued strong growth in pre-tax earnings. For total Citigroup, expenses should decline sequentially and cost of credit should continue to grow modestly year-over-year, year, reflecting volume growth and continued normalization in ICG. With that, Mike and I are happy to take any questions.
1: And at this time, if you do have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Your first question comes from a line of John McDonald with Autonomous Research.
4: Hi, good morning. Mark, Hi. wanted to ask morning, about John. the... How you doing? wanted to ask about the ROTC goal. Uh, so 12% goal for 2019. You're on the doorstep so far with the first half of 11.9. As you think about levers to kind of keep that up in the second half and push over the goal line to get above 12 for the year, the you know, second half often has not as strong capital markets. Um, obviously, hasn't been so good this, you know, so far this year. So just what, what are the things to think about puts and takes for the second half um, that could get you over that 12 for the year?
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, so, 12% remains the target for 2000 for 2019. Um, you know, as as you heard Mike mention, you heard me mention, we we're obviously in an uncertain environment. Um, the good news uh, is that we have seen continued momentum in the consumer franchise, particularly in branded cards, as we've talked about over the past couple of quarters, with, with very strong performance. Uh, this quarter, as well, on the heels of us converting those promotional balances to more average interest earning balances. And we'd expect, you know, that revenue growth to continue through the balance of the year. You heard me mention the international franchises, which are growing, uh, to have continued growth uh, in the balance of the year, and where there is muted growth to have uh, to offset that with expense management, and therefore have EBIT growth, particularly in the case of Of Latin America so those will be two positive drivers I would point to Um, I would obviously point to our um, our accrual businesses and transaction businesses um, on the ICG side um, 7% growth in both security services and TTS this quarter Uh, we'd expect continued growth from those businesses Um, and on the expense side we talked to uh, or I talked to um, really being on the high end of those productivity savings outweighing investments and and i i, I would expect to certainly come in um, with that six on the $600 million dollar side of the range that we that we've talked to there you know the big the big area where the uncertainty in the environment you can pick the factor whether it's um, the direct you know what's going on with rates and volatility around that or trade and tariff discussions it, it plays out through the market sensitive businesses it plays out through you know, the trading uh, that you see on both fixed income and equities, it plays out uh, through investment banking, it, it impacts corporate sentiment, and, and those things, as you would imagine, um, are difficult to predict. We obviously feel good about the client dialogue that we've had, uh, but that's those are the factors that, that are a bit harder to manage. And when we see that softness, what you saw in the first half is that we pulled levers that... We could pull responsibly, and you should expect that we would continue to do that in the back half um, without compromising two things: uh, one, the investments required to continue to grow, um, you know, the strong parts of the franchise; and two, infrastructure and controls. Um, and and uh, you know, those two things we think are critical to the long-term sustainability of the franchise. Um, we'll continue to ma- manage credit very carefully. Um, you saw our tax rate come in a little bit lower this quarter. We'll continue to do work around what we can do to uh, to get the tax rate uh, you know, as low as we responsibly can get it. And you've seen us actually do more on the capital side. So that combination of things uh, we think is, is helpful in, in obviously trying to, to get to that target of the 12%. Um, there are there is some unpredictability to that, particularly on the market side, and to the extent that that plays out more severely uh, than than forecasted, you know we would expect to be in and around the range of 12.
4: I guess also you did say you're expecting to have lower card losses in the second half versus the first, so that should help. Um, is there any front-loading of marketing or any other expense kind of front-loading, investment
3: front-loading that happens? Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at the profitability just in general on the consumer business, it does tend to skew, you know, towards the back half of the year because of things like marketing spend. Um, we also, and I mentioned this on the last call, we also pulled forward um, some of the repositioning that we were looking to do as we reorganized around different parts of the franchise, and so, Savings that we were uh, expecting kind of later in, in in 2020, we can we'll see some of that benefit play out through uh, the back half of, uh, of nineteen. So there are those things around levers and actions that we took in the first half that not only help the first half but have the the potential to help us in the second half as well.
4: Okay, and just last thing for me on that note, uh, you're still looking ahead towards a goal of thirteen and a half for next year.
3: Yeah, thirteen and a half percent uh, remains the target for next year. Um, you know, just to you know, obviously, again, I point back to the environment that we're in. We'll see how the environment plays out. We'll see how the market reacts to rate reductions. Obviously, the activity we saw um, last week in the way of a market reaction was was pretty favorable to having more certainty around the direction of rates. Um, but we'll see how those some of those things play out, and uh, it does remain the target. And if we have to identify additional levers to try and pull to, to get there, we will. But but as we stand here today, that, that 13.5% remains our target for 2020. Great. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Your next question is from the line of Glenn Shore with Evercore.
5: Hi. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello. Um, Question on, on the net interest income trends. So if you look at the 12% decline in non-interest-bearing deposits and the 9% increase in interest-bearing deposits and then also the seven basis point rise in deposit costs sequentially and then the drop in loan yields, those trends combined, while not surprising, you you would think from the outside would be a more negative tone on NII, but I, th- I think your guide was, was, was actually pretty good. Um, are there offsets that we don't see, and/or are some of those trends like the tail end of things that have been in motion, and they, they actually get better over the next couple of quarters?
3: Yeah, so um, you know, in terms of the, the net interest revenue, um, you know, we're obviously um, at about a billion three of net interest revenue with a strong Q one. Um, about $450 million in Q2, um, and, and, as we, as we look at that, uh, we've obviously factored in at this point, not only the shift that you've mentioned from non-interest bearing to interest bearing, but also the likelihood of, of a rate reduction, um, based on the talk that is, that is out there. And, and so as we, as we look at it and we look at kind of the continued momentum on the card side. Um, and we look at the end uh, of deposit growth, um, you know, that we're, that we're seeing, particularly in the TTS franchise with, with higher volumes, uh, a growth of, of 10% or so. We feel pretty good about um, our ability to get to that 4% growth in NIR. You know, notwithstanding that there are other factors that, that come into play, um, not the least of which is how many uh, additional cuts play out through the balance of the year. Um but as we sit here today we feel pretty good about that. The bigger driver the biggest driver I think would be um as I mentioned continued uh continued growth on the branded card side, continued growth on the accrual businesses. Those are gonna be the, the larger factors that play through the back half of the
5: year. Okay, I appreciate that. Maybe a little more color on, on the loan on the loan yield side coming down. I'm assuming that is LIBOR based loans and and the the follow up I have on that is, is who makes the call on on, on on those loans, meaning LIBOR based versus prime based, is, is it you, or or is it client led? I'm just curious on how to think about that as we go forward. It looks like LIBOR yeah. adjusted, but prime didn't, obviously.
3: Yeah. So we so we had you know we had we certainly saw some revenue pressure in the corporate lending book. That was a combination of kind of the um, um, spread compression, uh, in addition to in addition to some hedging some hedging cost. Um, and that certainly certainly played through here in terms of the pricing of the loans. That is a both a byproduct of, you know, what we're seeing in the market, you know, in the way of competition from a pricing point of view, um, and obviously in, in the funding costs that that we uh, that we have. I think we what we've tried to be diligent about is where there are um, uh, where, where there are where there are opportunities to both serve the client. And not necessarily tie up the balance sheet. We've taken advantage of those opportunities, particularly in our trading, our trade lending activity, so that we're not bringing on, um, you know, economic uh, positions that or positions that are uneconomical. Uh, we continue to see pressure from a pricing point of view in Asia, and so you've seen our Asia loans come down just because the combination of the economics not making sense again. As well as, um, as well as just really slowing demand given what's going on with trade. And so, um, you know, there is, there is pressure from a spread point of view. Uh, we do have, um, uh, you, know, a, a, uh, you know, a view towards pricing that not only considers our own internal funding but also the client demand and the competitive landscape. And that combination of factors is what, what plays out through the yield.
5: Okay, really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: Your next question is from the line of Jim Mitchell with Buckingham Research.
6: Hey, good morning. Hey, Jim. Uh, Jim. Hey, maybe just uh, following up on Glenn's question, just to zero in on deposits a little bit. Um, Interest-bearing deposit rates paid was up seven basis points uh, without any kind of a hike. Is that just a mix shift? You mentioned I think I think it looked like Asia uh, deposits were up. Um, I would imagine there are higher rates. Just trying to figure out, if, is there domestic pressure on rates paid or is that just mixed?
3: Yeah, so so there is some mixed shift. I mean, there is some shift from non-interest bearing to interest-bearing. Uh, that would affect the, the rates paid on interest-bearing. Yeah, that, that's right. And then so the other, the other dynamic is, in fact, um, what we're seeing, there are two things. One, what we see in the market from a competitive point of view. Two, there tends to be a um, you know a lag effect from a, from the betas that play through on the on the retail side, uh, and then three, as we've been growing some of the u s deposits that I mentioned earlier, um, some of that has been growth uh, in out of our markets but with high so with high yield saving account type uh, type product.
6: So would you expect that to continue to creep higher a little bit or? Start to stabilize.
3: Um, it it, it, it kind of depends on kind of what happens in the broader rate environment. We obviously are talking about rate cuts now, and, and that ultimately over time would have a would have an impact. I think the the, the strategic way that I tend to look at it is, um, you know, these deposit um, uh, the deposit activity that we have with clients is really geared towards the broader relationship that we have with them, as you know, and so we had a lot of good deposit growth on the. On the TTS side, that's around the broader solutions that we that we talk to and work with those clients around. The deposit growth we see on the, on the consumer side is really about, you know, the, the demonstrating the digital capabilities that we have and really broadening, you know, the relationship we have with them. So, yes, there is some pricing pressure, the rate movement in the future will certainly have an impact on how much more or less of that plays through, but we do think we're making progress against the broader strategic objectives.
6: Okay, and a clarification uh, for the two billion in NI growth this year. Are you assuming now a rate cut in that number, or I, I'm not sure if I heard you say that?
3: Yeah, we're assuming one rate cut in that number. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, and, yep. and then towards the back half of the year,
6: right. Um, and just one question on on GTS and trade finance. Um, You mentioned spreads being wider in trade. So, is sort of the trade war helping you a little bit, or have you seen a slowdown? Certainly, trade flows seem to have slowed. How do we think about? But you seem pretty confident in the growth in that business. How how are you thinking about the dynamics there?
2: You know, I I think from a a trade perspective, I would say um, I don't want to say B A U, but business activity remains uh, fairly strong. I think we've seen some trade routes shifting. You know, the example we give is, you know, as opposed to soy from the U.S., soy from Brazil, uh, et cetera. So trade route shifting, I think uh, our clients are kind of very engaged around kind of studying and trying to stay ahead of that. So I don't think we would speak to any kind of slowdown as of yet, but clearly people are paying a lot of attention to it.
6: Okay, great. Thank you.
1: Your next question is from the line of Matt O'Connor with Deutsche Bank. Good
7: morning. Good morning. Uh, So you guys are executing on the capital deployment strategy you laid out a couple years ago. And, um, you know, to be fair, I think there was some kind of debate or um, concern whether you could execute on that. And and you are. Um, But now you're sitting here, you performed very well in DFAST. Um, Some of your peers, um, you know, surprised the market and and delivered more than expected. And uh, it seems like your position to do even more than what you had promise a couple years ago and just wondering your thoughts on you know whether you can do it and the timing and, and how you'll approach it. Yeah so um,
3: you know as you mentioned we back at investor day we talked about uh, sixty billion dollars plus over the three year cycle. Um, we uh, we're going to exceed that we just announced the twenty one and and a half billion dollars over the, the four quarters covered by this twenty nineteen cycle. Um, you know, as you know, we um, you know we have an objective of trying to obviously generate the highest return and return as much as much capital as as we can to our shareholders., uh, we currently manage to a a one target of eleven and a half percent and that um, that obviously has uh, buffers in it for some of the uncertainty that's still out there, whether it be proposals like scB and uh, or other other things that impact the variability of capital. As we get greater clarity on those things, we will um, obviously continue to kind of look at that. But that remains the target going forward. We've got we're still running at 11.9 CET1 ratio. So, subject to growth needs, we will you know always be looking at how we ensure that we run that more tightly. To that target of 11.5, and And the way we think about the return of capital or distribution of capital going forward is largely as we get close to that 11.5%, which we expect to to get close to towards the end of the year, will be around how much capital we generate, um, you know, juxtaposed against you know how much we need to continue to grow. And so, uh, we certainly have you know the objective of of continuing. You know, to return as as much as makes uh, makes good sense given the the growth opportunities, you know, for the franchise. If you look back over the three year cycle, um, you know, we've returned on average about 121 percent of our of our net income available to uh, to common. So, um, you know, we we feel pretty good about you know that percentage, albeit we started at a higher CET1 ratio, you know, years ago.
7: And can you just remind us, you know, as we think about the 11.5% target, you know, what are some of the areas of clarity that you're looking for in terms of reevaluating that? We obviously got some, uh, some comments from the Fed in recent weeks um, that seems like the stress test might be a little bit easier than feared as they bring in the stress capital buffer. And, you know, just what are some of the things specifically that, that you're looking for um, uh, to potentially uh, bring that down?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, look, there are there are num- you just mentioned uh, one with the SCB. That's one of the proposals. That's that's still out there. We just got, as you mentioned, some clarity of that. We'll have to see how that factors in. There are a number of other proposals that are still that are still outstanding. And the dialogue that we've heard from from regulators is largely around ensuring that you know those things, that there's understanding of how those things will work in aggregate in terms of how they impact the amount of capital that institutions have to hold, whether that's you know, additional clarity on uh, you know on on how to think about uh, gsip. We obviously have CECL that are coming into play in early 2020, but you know all of those factors are are important. Um, the we've heard commentary around greater clarity or transparency um, as part of the CCar process. We obviously support greater transparency. We think it'll help to remove some of the variability in in capital planning. So as that um starts to kind of come and continue to come into the fold, that'll be important to to how we think about this. So those are just a couple of, of examples.
2: And I think as we look at, at it, Mark, right, when we think about the four and a half plus the three plus the three, yeah. what's in some ways on the table is the management buffer, the hundred basis points. And as you describe as we look at G and Cecil and kind of all these things coming together, whether or not there's an opportunity to re examine that or not. That's right.
7: And then just lastly, to bring it all together, like, as you think about some of these moving pieces, do you think you'll have clarity before the next car cycle that might motivate you to resubmit, or is it more hoping to have clarity for the next cycle uh, on these factors?
5: Yeah,
3: it's, it's um, You know, these things kind of take time to play out, I think, as we've seen over the past couple of years. And so... We'll just really have to see how um, how much additional clarity we get over the coming months, and we'll figure that out as as time progresses. Okay, thank you.
1: Your next question is from the line of Saul Martinez with UBS.
8: Hey guys, good morning. Good morning. Um, a couple questions. First, Mark, I just wanted to clarify the the uh, NII guide. So. I think you mentioned you're still on track to, for $2 billion, um increase this year versus last year, um, you know, that uh, and 4%. That does imply, by my calculations, you know, that second half, the quarterly run rate does continue to ratchet up versus the first half, something like twelve one, twelve two. Um Is that – I just want to clarify, that's right, and that's including a rate cut being baked into that. Outlook.
3: Yeah. So, um, what we are still, um, you know, targeting and on track for uh, two billion dollars for the full year, as as I stated. Um, we do have one rate hike that we're assuming. Rate cut. Sorry, Rate cut that we're assuming. Excuse me. Rate cut that we're assuming um, on the on the back in the back half of the year. Obviously, if that happens sooner. Happens in uh, in July, that would have an impact on uh, you know on on the NIR forecast that we have, and candidly, if there is more than one rate cut, um, you know that would have additional uh, additional impact. Um, and so those the, those are the those are the factors. There are obviously other factors that come into play, um, mm-hmm. but that is and that is assuming obviously a change in the in the, in the U.S. rate. So but we are still uh, targeting the, uh, the $2 billion, recognizing there's some risk there.
8: Got it. But, but per, given this, the $50 million impact from 25, per quarter from uh, 20, each 25 base points of cut, presumably even, you know, even if we do get one cut or two cuts, it seems like you're confident that you can get NII growth in the back end of the year versus the first half.
3: Yeah, I think the I think the the broader issue is the uncertainty that that Mike and I have referenced. Um, you know, that's that's just out there. Um, and so, right. if, it, if we just isolated this to, you know, two interest rate cuts in the scheme of a, you know, 47 billion dollar NIR line, I mean, you, you're absolutely. You're, you're right, uh, but the reality is that uh, it's the, the broader uncertainty that's out there uh, that's impacting uh, that's impacting the industry, uh, and okay. a lot of that flows through the market sensitive uh, sensitive revenues, um, you know, and and just kind of corporate sentiment uh, more broadly. Is,
8: was there in the past you've broken out this this um, slide on page ten? Where you break out the accrual versus legacy versus trading—is there a reason why you're not doing that this time around?
3: Yeah, just I mean, as as we kind of exited holdings and and uh, and started to kind of wind down those legacy businesses, it became um, you know less of a uh, significant variable as you as you look at these total total revenues. Uh, you know, it was it was probably you know five percent. You know of the aggregate revenues in the first quarter, and so it just wasn't as it wasn't on a constant dollar basis. It Just wasn't as as meaningful, and so we moved towards towards simplifying it uh, with both the the legacy breakout as well as the the trading NIR breakout.
8: Okay, and, and one final one for me. Um, you know, the, the, the a a large portion of the expected profitability expansion in North America consumer comes from right sizing the profitability in, in retail banking and, and, you know, you gave some positive commentary obviously, uh, and you feel pleased about the, um, the, the momentum in terms of deposits, the inflows, the digital strategies, tapping your, your, um, your cards network, um, or your cards clients. Um, but you also have a lower rate environment and deposit spreads are, you know, um, Likely going to come in, and I think you didn't have any growth in, in revenues in retail banking in a tougher rate environment. Can you right-size profitability, or how much more difficult is it to right-size the profitability of your retail banking business if the Fed continues to cut?
3: Yeah, you know, I'd make I'd make two points. One is, um, you know, as I think about you know the back half of 2019. And even 2020 for that that matter, um, you know, I think that the the work that we've done in branded cards um, is going to be a a meaningful contributor or continue to be a meaningful contributor to the revenue performance that we see in in consumer North America. Um, You know, the North America Retail Bank, um, as, as you mentioned, we, you know, it runs at a at a at a high efficiency, uh, you know, uh, rate at this point, um, we are seeing good traction as it relates to deposits increasing. But what again, what that's really about for us is is how we uh, deepen the relationships and kind of, you know, broaden um, you know the penetration of those products and services into our card customer base. And so over time, I think it's going to be more challenging. To look at just the you know the retail banking you know portion of that we break out in income because uh, be, because of that broader client strategy uh, and so I think I, so I think that's that's kind of how we've thought about it. That said, um, I mentioned kind of you know repositioning that we. Uh, have taken in in the first quarter that we've taken a a bit of that in the second quarter. That's largely around the reorganization to support that strategy and moving from a product siloed type of business model to one that is more geared towards the client. And we think that that will help. That obviously will help the margins as we continue to execute against the strategy.
8: Got it. That's really helpful. Thank you.
1: Your next question is from the line of Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Securities.
9: Uh, hi, I have one very short-term question and one very long-term question. Uh, the very short-term question relates to uh, what was the dollar amount of the mark-to-market hedge losses? You said that roughly offset trade web or it was a much bigger number than what was in the press release. So what was that number?
3: So the um, in the quarter – the market market loss, loan losses were, um, losses on loan hedges, was $75 million. For the half is what I was talking about. For the half, the number was about $306 million. So about 231 in the first quarter. And so that's, that's the number.
9: OK. And then the longer term question is, how much runway do you have left with technology to improve Citigroup's efficiency? Uh, Mark, when you mentioned uh, the levers, to help meet your targets, uh, the ROTC target for 12%. You didn't mention technology uh, yet. You mentioned the 300 million spread between the, the savings from the investments over the, the new investment levels. So, what's the runway left, kind of short, medium, and long term? Thanks. Yeah. Well, in that in that
3: five in that 500 to 600 for the year, the 300 that we've done year to date as it relates to productivity are the benefits of the technology investments that we've been making. So some portion you know, of those savings is a byproduct of, of technology investments. Um, we continue, we, we see those technology benefits in the digital capabilities that we've built out and how that plays out in a lower cost to to not only acquire but lower cost to to service the clients. We see things like the um, you know use of e-statements going up. We see things like volumes into Call centers, uh, you know, going down. Um, all of those things are benefici- or, or benefits that that are generated as a byproduct of technology investments that we that we've made. Um, we expect a similar level of productivity saves in in 2020. Um, we do continue to invest in technology. In fact, what you heard me mention earlier in terms of One of the protected areas uh, being infrastructure and and control. There are a couple of different ways to look at that protected area as we invest in technology around our infrastructure and improve the data quality that we have and things of that sort. Not only does it help us run a um, safer and, and more sound organization, but it also arms us with information sooner to enable us to react and serve our clients uh, more quickly. And so, uh, yes, the answer is, is yes, we do see benefits from technology playing out uh, in, the, in the expense line and in the productivity savings that I've referenced both in 19 and 2020 and likely beyond, and, and those things will help in getting us to, uh, to the lower levels of operating efficiency that we've talked about achieving over time.
2: Mike, I think if you go to page twenty one in the deck, you can see we've put in there some different drivers and metrics, and I think from a you know the way the way I think about it is today we really we really run the combination of an analog and a digital bank. And, and the faster we can continue to drive digital adoption mobile usage, we know that that's cheaper. It's significantly cheaper when we're solving issues on your phone or we're solving issues away from physical interaction or voice. And again, you can see, um, you know, we've got roughly 30 million active digital users. We've got 20 million active mobile users between North America and international. And you can look at the year-over-year growth rates, uh, I think probably amongst the, you know, the highest in the industry. And so we're on this journey, and obviously the investments that we can make to, to switch those over, we think yield, yield, you know, quite high returns.
9: And then last follow-up, um, uh, Mark, you reaffirmed the guidance for the RTCE for this year and next, and Mike, do you also reaffirm that guidance? I assume you do.
2: Uh, absolutely.
9: So uh, City, this predates you, missed a lot of targets this decade as we approach the end of the decade, and consensus does not expect you to reach those targets, and Look, we we have a buy on the stock. We haven't always had a buy on the stock. and We don't even have you reaching those targets. So, where do you think the disconnect is? You think that Citi is going to get a thirteen and a half percent RTC next year, and you're hard pressed to find too many other people who agree with you, assuming we don't have a recession or anything like that. Where do you think the market is wrong?
3: You know, let me let me um, let me try to answer that in a couple ways. First, let me let me go back to nineteen um, for a second because. Um, You know, both Mike and I have said that the 12 percent remains the target for 2019. It absolutely does. Um, You can also look at the first half of the year or the fourth quarter of last year and, and witness strength in the franchise on the consumer side, on the accrual side of the business. But you can also witness the impact of the environment that we're in and the uncertainty around that despite that uncertainty we've gotten to 11.9 in the first half through pulling a number of levers um, uh, and we would expect to continue to pull those levers into the back half of this year to the extent that that uncertainty um, um, uh, increases or there is more significant reaction from the market to the uncertainty you know we'll of course Look and work to find additional levers, but at some point that becomes challenged in terms of getting to that 12%. Um, just given the things we want to protect in this franchise, and, and I believe that even if it were to become challenged, that we'd end up in a range around that 12 And, and that is what we're, we're working towards that that target, that 12% target in terms of the in terms of 2020. Um, in the 13.5% um, target that we have for 2020 and the disconnect. I mean, we've talked through the disconnect in the past, and um, it moves around, as, as you would you would know very well, but it, it's ranged from being a little bit of a difference of views on the top line, which I think we've started to narrow some of that gap, given the performance we've been able to demonstrate through the first half of the year, again, in those strong areas, um, there's also been uh, less of a disconnect on the expense line as I've given I think a little bit more specificity around the guidance there. Um, there's been a cost of credit difference of views um, uh, you know, in the past and uh, again we feel uh, pretty good about our, our cost of credit outlook but we obviously recognize that you know, where we are in the cycle. Um, there's been, obviously, tax work that we've continued to do and will continue to do, and, and I gave some additional view on that. We've done more on capital than, uh, than we originally talked about. And so it's, it's those, those drivers and levers that will continue to pull through the balance of this year. We'll see how this year plays out, given all of the, the uncertainty referenced. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll go into 2020 uh, with the 13 and a half at remaining our target and with, a cl- with clarity on, on where we think we'll end
2: up against it. Yeah, and Mike, the way I think about it simplistically is, is uh, we're going to do everything within our power to, to get to those numbers with the exception of two things. One is we are going to continue to make the investments that are necessary to keep our business competitive. You can see a lot of things going on around us, and I think around our franchises and consumer or in our institutional businesses. An example, in uh, TTS or security services, um, we think we've just got to make those investments to stay competitive. And the second thing is around is our commitment to our shareholders and our regulators to make sure that we're making the investments uh, in terms of safety and soundness. And so we won't put those at risk, but everything else is
9: on the table. All right. Thank you.
2: Your
1: next question is from the line of Stephen Schubach with Wolf Research.
10: Hey, good morning. Good morning. So I wanted to start off with a question on the FIC business. You, know, you cited some of the pressures um, within FIC and rates in particular. You know, your business has always been somewhat unique just given the higher contributions from TTS, in particular with non-financial corporates. I think that's more than 30% of your total revenue there. I'm wondering whether you're seeing greater resiliency on that side of the business which would suggest maybe even more pronounced pressure within institutional. Um,
3: so, I, I guess what I'd say is obviously our fixed income, you know, revenues for the quarter were down about four percent if you exclude the gain from TradeWeb. I think when you look at what transpired in the quarter, there was a fair amount of you know volatility, uh, you know, around around rates. Around rates and rate movement, and what we saw was that play out, um, uh, particularly around the uh, investor client base that we have. So, to the to the point we've made before, uh, we continued to see stable corporate client activity, um, particularly in rates and currencies, uh, where there's a strong linkage to our broader franchise and, and in particular, TTS. But we did see Decreased activity with our investor clients, given all the macro uncertainty that that I've mentioned now a couple of times. You know, many of the investor clients remained on the on the sidelines, um, and and frankly, it was the speed and the magnitude of the rate movements that created a, a challenging marketing market environment um, and and made it difficult to monetize client flows on the on the. Equity side well you didn't ask about equities, but on the, on the equity side, I mean the, the, the trade war had a similar or trade trade discussions and war had a similar impact um, that kind of flowed through uh, you know particularly again with investor clients I mentioned earlier impacting um, you know impacting uh, both cash equities and prime brokerage. but we did see again corporate client activity, uh, even in equities um, kind of hold up nicely playing out through equity derivatives.
2: Yeah, and, the way, and the way I would say it, Marcus, I think is, is engagement is high. Engagement is very good. Yes. But I think right now the challenge is, and maybe it's the opportunity, in that we're clearly pivoting from a, a, a environment where we had predicted or thought or had been built in rising rates to, at this point, rates going lower. And I think, you know, from our perspective, we don't believe that the market has made that full adjustment. And there's probably some turn that's got to come as portfolios set up for that potentially lower rate environment. The question is when will that come and you know to to what degree will that come will there will we get conviction in terms of the trajectory of this lower rate environment and portfolios have to reposition because I think today they're they're not positioned where they need to be fully and, and again to that to that point,
3: um, just last week when Uh, there appeared to be some signs of greater clarity on the move in rates, the reduction in rates, and the timing of that. You know, the equity markets responded very, very favorably to that. And so to your point, Mike, I think clarity um, in direction, um, you know, should yield uh, greater confidence and perhaps a more of a risk-on mentality as it relates to the markets.
10: No, very helpful caller. I uh, appreciate that. And just one follow-up for me on ICG credit. You guided to or indicate some normalization of credit trends, but the charge-off rate there is quite low at eight basis points. I'm just wondering, is it fair for us to extrapolate that eight basis point loss rate as indicative of what you guys view as normalized? And can you maybe just speak to some of the unique aspects of the business, like trading, trade finance, that should drive some lower uh, loss levels through the cycle, since that was actually pretty encouraging commentary from our point of view.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, when you, when you think about our corporate lending book and, and the quality of our exposure, the multinational clients that we cover, the 83% of it being, you know, investment-grade, you know, type exposure. Um, historically, we've had, you know, loss rates that have been, you know, low in the way of number of basis points, five to six basis points. Um, historically and, and uh, yes, we are starting to see some normalization of that. I think the quarter uh, cost of credit of one hundred and three million dollars um, is is uh, reflective of that coming out of coming out of last year and and representative, I think of of uh, what we've talked to in the way of what to you know to to, to look to see in the way of normalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so i think I think it's a byproduct of the, the quality of the book that we that we have and the nature of the uh the nature of the activity that we
10: do in in lending okay, great uh, that's it for me. thanks for taking my questions.
1: Thank you Your next question is from the line of Ken isden with Jeffries.
11: Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, just to follow up on the credit side mark you point out that the the, the, uh on the consumer side of credit that things have also kind of just gone according to plan you've maintained that guide at what point do you, do you see the end of the light in terms of the seasoning meaning how long do you think you can kind of stay in this um you know very benign zone for the card side presuming uh, uh, that the economy stays in, in relatively good form any any reason to see any change to that i guess is the question
3: yeah i mean not at this stage i mean it's it's we gave kind of medium term guidance if you will and we talked about those ranges of 300 to 325 500 to 525 um you know again certainly through the the balance of this year we expect to end up inside of that range um you know we look at we look at, we look at probably all the things that would be would be obvious to folks and and then some so if you look at just on the macro front we're obviously looking and watching closely um, you know the inverted yield curve and 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 what that has meant historically but when we when we look at that juxtaposed against um you know uh you know the internal metrics that we that we use uh whether that be card usage patterns or utilization or payment rates or a percentage of customers making minimum payments i mean thus far those indicators have all remained broadly stable, and so
12: um I, I
3: don't I don't see any any uh, any cause at this point for material concern.
11: Okay, and then the tax rate you mentioned twenty two twenty three in the back half, and you've also talked about there potentially being some more levers there. Can you help us understand, like does that mean that over time you have the chance to still take the tax rate lower as you look into '20 and as part of your that plan
3: for the ROTC improvement? We're constantly looking at it and trying to identify opportunities. Uh, you know, looking at obviously where we book business and um, the client demands around that, the uh, and where there are opportunities to, to do that. But at this point, I'm I'm not taking down uh, the guidance. I'm just obviously pointing out perhaps the obvious, which is that it's it's one of the levers that we continue to to push on and explore.
11: Understood. Last one, just on the deposit cost side, you, you know, with the potential rates uh, turning and some non U S central banks already cutting, what's the lag effect here in terms of this quarter, the deposit costs were up seven basis points You know, what's the rate of change that you need to see before you can see a leveling out of the, you know, of the basis point increases that we see on the deposit cost side. Thanks, Mark.
3: Yeah. So it's, it's, I guess it's, um, you know, what we've seen, what we've seen uh, during the rate rise or increases were that the, the betas on the on the corporate side, on the commercial side, have kind of kind of tick up a lot faster, and there tends to be a lag on the on the retail consumer side. And you know, as things as things turn, um, I would expect um, to some extent similar similar type of direction. Notwithstanding that the retail deposit side still has that lag to it. And there are other factors, such as the competitive landscape that's out there for, uh, you know, for deposits. And so it's a little bit hard to kind of pinpoint exactly when when that stabilizes, just given, you know, all of those factors. But we're obviously managing it closely and managing it in the context of the broader strategy that I referenced a, a couple of times now.
1: Your next question is from the line of Betsy Grossick with Morgan Stanley.
13: Hi, good morning. Good morning, Betsy. Uh, A couple questions just on the deposit business, a follow up there. Could you give us a sense? I think you mentioned at the beginning of the call that you had a $2 billion increase in deposits um, that was from the digital efforts you've got, two thirds outside your footprint and and half of the two coming from folks that have your card, but didn't have a banking relationship with you. Could you just give us a sense of uh, how that was relative to expectations and what you think the major drivers were for generating that growth, you know, speaking to rate versus, um, you know, marketing versus uh, any other factors that you want to add.
3: Yep. Um, So, so, one, I would say that is that is in line with what we were expecting in the way of uh, deposit, um, you know, performance uh, through the digital sales channel. Uh, we have seen kind of broadly just good activity uh, with our consumer retail clients, uh, not just with the the net deposits, but also retaining deposits as they shift into into AUMs, and so and as as clients start to. To make investments and so the flow levels have been you know very good if you include both AUMs and and the deposits um, i would say we would expect continued growth in the in the deposits in the back half of the year um, you know it is a combination uh, of and if you think about our strategy again to target card customers a good portion of the deposit growth that we that we achieved were outside of our six markets and with our card customers who did not have a retail banking relationship, um, it's a byproduct, I would say, of not only uh, rate. So there was some portion that is that is tied to the high yield savings account. Although that even that does demonstrate the power of the model, you know, because we know these customers and they're not cannibal. It's not a cannibalization of what we gather inside of our inside of our market. But it's also a byproduct of the work we've been doing around um, creating a value proposition and, and understanding which of our which of our clients are likely to respond to which to what rewards. And so you heard me mention um, thank you points and uh, and double cash rewards. Those were part of the offerings to uh, to clients to uh, to join us in terms of the retail banking products that we offer. You know, in exchange for uh, you know either more thank you points or more benefits that accrue from the double cash reward. So it is a combination of of marketing, um, targeted marketing in terms of knowing the customers we want to go after and what they're likely to respond to. Some of it is rate, yes, but it, it's a combination of all of those things, and we expect uh, continued uh, continued growth.
13: And then I know you mentioned that the NIM came under a little bit of pressure as you had significant increase in, you know, deposit growth. And the the, the tie-in question here is, is there anything you need to see from these customers? Is there, like, do, do they need to keep their deposits with you for a certain amount of time before you're able to, um, you know, take some duration with these deposits on the asset side? Or should we anticipate that as you're growing your new deposits here and out of footprint, um, that that gets reinvested in the front end of the curve
3: yeah so I mean obviously there there's LCR treatment for different types of deposits these are largely time deposits that um, uh, that we uh, that we've um, been bringing in. I think that uh, we would expect that to uh, like I said expect that to continue um, you know down the path there's no reason for us to to feel as though the the uh, these are kind of short term in nature or anything of, of that sort
13: Okay, but they'd be match-funded or match-invested, I should say, is is how you – okay. And then just uh, two other questions. One on the TSS business, Um, could you give us a sense of how you expect the business operates or, you know, performs in a declining interest rate environment? If we look at the forward curve, you know, how should we expect TSS to behave? And then you mentioned some strong – Pipeline with uh, you know, initiatives for the clients, maybe you could speak to that, and I'm kind of interested in understanding what you're planning on um, vis-a-vis you know the Libra announcement that came out of Facebook. Now I know Libra seems like it's more personal related, but um, there is a C2B and a B2B element with that, so I wanted to understand what your plans are. because um, you know, my basic question is, why do we need Libra? Seems like you might have what, you know, companies need, so maybe you should speak to that a little bit.
3: Thanks. Yeah, I guess I'll start and then uh Mike may want to chime in. So just in terms of the TTS business, um, you know, we, we obviously have seen very strong growth in the TTS business over the over the past number of, of years and, and, and quarters, um and even this quarter with seven percent growth, which is probably a little bit lower than what we've seen. Uh, in, in prior years uh, in just as the, the rate increases have started to uh, become fewer and now we move into a rate, uh, a likely rate reduction. Um, the impact of TTS is factored into um, you know, at least the estimate that I gave you in terms of the impact of a 25 basis point um, reduction. It obviously would have an impact on uh, on the growth rate but i would i would say that the majority of the growth rate that we've experienced in our tTS business is not tied towards uh, toward not tied to the interest rate um, but instead tied towards um, growth that we've had in in both with multinational clients that that are large and that we've been with for a long time but also new uh, emerging clients as they've entered into to new markets new countries and We've been there to assist them with, uh, you know, with how they kind of grow their businesses and operations in those new environments, where whether it be working capital or supply chain um, uh, uh, needs that they that they've had. And so, uh, I would expect to see continued growth uh, in TTS, albeit at a slower pace in light of uh, the rate environment, but. Again, our relationship with our clients are broader than just us taking their cash and holding their cash, and we're offering them solutions that are a lot broader than just the rate that we'd pay them for cash. The the other piece that I'd mention is that we have been and will continue to invest in technology around our TTS franchise. Um, you know, it is, it is obviously a very competitive space, but it's one where we've had a strong position for a long time. It's, it's been uh, nicely growing. It's very efficient. It's high returning. We're nicely entrenched with many of our customers, and we've got to continue to invest in the client experience um, in enabling faster cross-border uh, activity for those clients. And so um, good growth. I expect to see continued good growth. Requires uh, investment. We're in front of that investment to stay competitive, and we'll continue to do so. And uh, I'll let Mike kind of comment on some of the other pieces you mentioned.
2: Mark, I would just in going back to TTS for one second, Betsy. um, Operating in a declining rate environment is nothing new. Uh, It's certainly not new in the U.S. And you look at our TTS business or operating around the world. You know, many, many jurisdictions we operate we've been in declining rate environments for a period of time, and I think the work the team has done moving from interest rate sensitive to more fee driven uh, types of relationships has been helpful in that uh, on your your question pertaining to uh, what's going on from a technology perspective and in this case Libra in particular, uh, one is I am not we are not dismissive at all of these we we look at them we study them. Uh, as we've said, we were not uh, are not part of the inaugural group. Uh, I've read the white paper several times uh, at this point in time and and again, I look uh you know and there's uh, I think some um, uh, redeeming or there's some um some qualitative aspects that are appealing and i think there's there's others that uh, might raise some questions and I think the way we think about it is that um, the market is moving and likely moving quickly towards real-time, frictionless, uh, ubiquitous, global money movements and payments. And that's just a reality and that's gonna happen and I think we're pretty well uh, positioned around that. As I think of things like Libra, not a question of if it's when the digital currency comes, it's a question, is that currency one that kind of operates as a consortium or is it a uh, federal reserve or is it a central bank-backed type currency? And I think we're preparing for a world where both of those, where um, consumers, businesses are going to have flexibility in terms of their choices of what they choose to use. And our goal, objective, and mandate really is to be there with a system that's got the capacity to operate across all of those.
13: So a lot of times big tech will highlight friction in the system and opportunities they have to cut friction out, meaning... You know, take out fee rates of legacy businesses. Um, could you speak to how you're thinking about that? Because I think you know some people might view you as a legacy business with uh, you know margin that can be taken out. How do you how do you answer that kind of question? Yeah,
2: in the Betsy, I would probably break our businesses into two components. I'd break it into a consumer business and into an institutional payments business. I think in the consumer business, it's clear that interchange is an example is a friction that has existed for a period of time. And as we've seen elsewhere in the world, will likely to continue to come down. And so, um, and I think that's one reason why you've seen the disruptors or the innovators so focused on consumer versus in institutional payments. Because on the institutional side, there's really not much money in the pure movement of money. It's in the, op- it's in the, it's in the operation of the operating account where, yes, you do get some float. But by the way, Libra uh, has float. And in their float, as I've read, they're actually not paying. That's where the partners are receiving their income. Uh, There are frictions in foreign exchange, there are frictions in terms of rates and other things that we combine with that, but you've got to have the back end that can provide those services in today's age, not only provide them, but provide them in a real time of scale way. So again, not dismissive, but on the institutional side of things that from a payments perspective, you've got to have the full package. It's not just the movement of money is not the answer in there. And so again, uh, not dismissive, but you know, and that's why the investments in areas like TTS are so important. That we're continuing to to build out the front end. We're continuing to take pain points out, and whether those frictions are in the forms of fees or money, or or probably you know to our customers' benefit, you know even more so in the form of onboarding uh, and kind of all the the frictions that come in terms of account opening and making sure that we're investing in. BSA, AML, and those other pieces such that we can, can, can continue to distinguish ourselves with our clients as the place to go.
13: That's great. Thank
1: you. Your next question is from the line of Erica Najarian with Bank of America. And Erica, your line is open. Yes. Hi. Can you hear me now?
3: Yes. Good morning.
1: Hi, good morning. Um, Thank you so much for answering the questions on your ROTC targets. Um, Maybe asking it a a different way, the market seems to be now expecting three rate cuts between now and the end of 2020. I think previously you've set set an efficiency goal of 53% for 2020 with 175 basis points of improvement in 19 and 225 in 2020. And I'm wondering if we do get three rate cuts and corporate activity um, remains at current levels, is there enough productivity savings that you can identify to reiterate the efficiency targets as well?
3: Yeah, um look, I mean, we obviously the volatility around rate movement has been pretty pretty significant over the past. Couple of quarters from us from an increase to now a reduction and possibly three reductions and so um, if we had significant moves in rates um, you know we can kind of do the math as to what the implications you know, would be. I think we'd also have to make some assumptions around those other factors that are in the environment and what happens with those, whether it's trade and tariffs, et cetera, in order to really have a fulsome answer in terms of what the implications would be on achieving a 13 and a half and then being able to ascertain what levers we'd be able to pull. So it's it's a difficult question to answer as I sit here today as to you know whether um you know which levers and 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 how much of those levers we'd be able to pull while protecting the things that Mike and I have referenced in still hitting a a thirteen and a half percent. I think to some extent, I want to see how um, this first rate cut plays out and and what the implications are for additional rate cuts again we 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 could very well see, as Mike suggested, the, the market having to react to a rate reduction and certainty around the direction in a way that is favorable to trading businesses. But but we've got to kind of wait and see how some of that plays out.
1: Okay, thank you. Your next question is from the line of Brian klein Hansel with KBW.
4: Yeah, Morning. So, a quick question on branded cards. You said you expect to maintain the current mix between the full rate and promotional. But I guess breaking that down, are you still expecting migration to be occurring from the promotional to full rate, um, and you're just going to be relying on promotional um, for loan balances?
3: Going forward, or more heavily relying on promotional balances going so forward. So, in, in order to, in order to maintain the the mix that we have, we will need to continue to invest in promotional and bringing on promotional balances, and um, and so we will continue to do that. They will continue. We now we have obviously a track record of understanding how to do that, and uh, and understanding the timing for which it takes for them to convert and and flip into. Um, average interest earning balances, but we, we now are reaching a mix that we think is a, a a healthy mix for us. And in order to maintain that, we will need to continue to uh, to invest.
4: Okay, and then secondly, you mentioned that you're seeing. Or macro conditions are slowing in Latin America, specifically Mexico. Um, but there was additional levers you could pull on the expense side. I mean, what are examples of those additional levers that you have that aren't already
3: in budget? Thanks. You know, in um, in in Latin America, you know, and, and in Mexico, what, what we saw last year was we saw expenses were up. I want to say about eight percent last year. Um, and what I what I referenced. Um, what I, what I referenced uh, this year or this quarter and last quarter was the growth that we were seeing in EBIT. And the growth that we're seeing in EBIT um, is a byproduct in some ways of, of the investment spend that we uh, made last year, now starting to play pay dividends, so to speak, um, through 2019. And so um, investments uh, or, or the digital capabilities that we uh, that we invested in from a technology point of view, um, the organization or business model uh, structure that we put in place in terms of our our retail activity there and all of those things are are starting to to play out as as expected. Um, we're about I don't know halfway through um, the investment plan that we announced a couple of years ago um, uh, and we have the opportunity obviously to temper the remaining spend uh, that was planned for to ensure that it's it's done consistent with the market opportunity that we see, um, and so that obviously is a is a factor that would help on the expense line, and then we're tempering um, you know growth in terms of loan activity, loan volume in light of what's going on you know in the economy, and that obviously helps at least uh, as we think about expected cost of credit and what have you. So those are a number of the factors that that play out there. Okay, thanks.
1: Your next question is from the line of Marty Mosby with Vining Sparks.
14: Thanks for uh, taking the questions this morning. Sure. Um, Marty. To hit on the ROTC targets again, would success be reaching those goals in the fourth quarter of each of these years or would success be, you know, ultimate success actually for the whole year? So as you're kind of envisioning that, I kind of, in my targets have you kind of reaching those by the end of each year, but are you really saying that you're going to be 13 and a half percent average for the whole year of 2020?
2: So
3: the, the, the target that we've set, um, was for 12% was the full year Return on tangible common equity target, um, and as was the case for the thirteen and a half for 2020.
14: And then, when you think about capital markets or institutional business, it's been compressed or depressed for a while. We keep thinking this is uncertainty in the marketplace, or it's related to you know something that's causing a you know just a short-term hit. But is this somewhat more secular? And when you start thinking about your goals for next year, especially in 2020, are we assuming some of this pressure that we're in begins to release? And can you give us any kind of feel for the estimate of, you know, what you're kind of assuming the uncertainty and that has had an impact on the short-term capital markets types of businesses?
2: Sure. Uh, You know, Marty, what I would say is I, I think that there's part of it that is secular, but today, I would argue the majority of it is cyclical. And what drives me to that statement is the intervention of central banks around the world and the amount of quantitative easing. You know, if you tell me the QE is just there forever, then I would probably move towards the majority of it being secular. But at some point, these central banks have to start to back out of the market in terms of asset purchases, in terms of liquidity, and I actually think that there's going to be an opportunity for those that are there to step in and provide the liquidity and, and you know, leadership on that, on that front. And again, what you see is, and you see it, you, uh, you follow it closely, you, know, you listen to what everybody says, you know, we're not measuring trading by the year, we're not measuring it by the quarter. You know, trading in today's age is kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. You know, a change of sentiment out of the Fed causes markets to react quickly, and I think it's what's what makes the forecasting as, you know, either Mark or I speak at these conferences so difficult. You tend to kind of speak mid-quarter, and these things can change in either direction pretty quickly. And so it's not a lack of engagement from a client perspective, it's a lack of conviction. And uh, again, I think we've, we, we've got the, combi- the combination of that with a bit of overhang from an environmental perspective. And clearly, I think the central banks, you know, you know, continuing to be actively involved and in some ways, you know, taking part of the role that ultimately, you know, the banks will need to play in the future. I'd add, I'd add to that. You know, as we see the pressures that
3: we we've talked about impacting the trading businesses, you know, in many ways we're not we're not just standing still um, as this happens. And so, you know, you you've seen um, you've seen us announce kind of the uh, reorganization, if you will, of our spread products or in our spread products area. Uh, we recently announced, recently announced under the new leadership in, in markets, um, combining kind of our rates and currencies business, both in an effort to ensure that we're better covering uh, better covering our clients and better positioned to cover our clients. Um, and, and you'll continue to see as markets evolve and as the industry evolves for us to constantly be looking at our business model for ways to improve it. And to improve the effectiveness of it, to improve the profitability and returns associated with it, and so we're we're uh, we're mindful of kind of how things are changing. Uh, to Mike's point, they do appear to be cyclical in nature, but we're constantly evaluating our businesses and and trying to position ourselves effectively.
14: Thanks. That was very helpful. And then lastly, I wanted to ask you as we think the Fed could begin to you know pull short-term interest rates down, are we preparing to be able to begin to lower deposit rates instead Mm -hmm. of actually increasing them? So this has been a a quick inflection point, but do you think that you'll be able to offset some of the impact as you're able to pull those deposit rates back down?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we've seen, we t- I talked a little bit about earlier about the betas and how they vary from the corporate clients and commercial clients to the retail consumer client base. And um, I, I think there are other important factors as uh, rates start to move in a downward direction. Uh, we have seen some of the players in the industry start to take rate down. Um, the other factors include the competitive landscape that's out there and how players decide to adjust their pricing. Um, but it also includes how you think about the relationship with the customer. And if it is, in fact, more than just that deposit relationship, that's going to fa- it factor into how you think about pricing strategy. But I would imagine over, over time, uh, with a, a, a clarity on the direction that you will see, um, you know, respond, uh, you know, uh, over time.
14: And historically, we've seen the backdrop of higher deposit betas as rates initially drop, meaning you drop a little bit more, and then eventually that has to slow down, kind of reverse to what we had on the way up. So um, thanks for your uh, your answers today.
1: Yep. Your final question comes from the line of Gerard Cassidy with RBC.
12: Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gerard. Gerard. You guys did very well in the CCAR this year in terms of the amount of capital that was reduced you know, during the stress test. I think you dropped about 500 basis points, which was the lowest in maybe four or five years. What was the primary driver? Was it obviously uh, de-risking the balance sheet, but was it primarily coming from city holdings, you know, falling off? And then second, um, if it continues to go this way, would you consider lowering your CET1 capital ratio? Your target,
3: that is, yeah. So, um, as Mike kind of alluded to to earlier, um, you know, there are a couple of factors that are involved in the in the CDT one ratio. Just taking that part of the question first, um, you know, and obviously we've had uh, you know a management buffer that is included there uh, of about a hundred basis points. We have you know kind of a three percent placeholder in terms of the you know the SCB. Uh, and we are, we're getting more clarity on on that, uh, it seems like in some of the recent commentary. And as we get um, more clarity on, on the SCB proposal and other proposals, and it takes out the risk of variability to how we think about capital planning, we will certainly you know take a look at the uh, you know eleven and a half percent and see that that still that still makes sense. Um, You know, in terms of you know the the ask that we that we made of the 21.5 billion and what was was approved, we obviously um, you know ran our scenario with an eye towards um, you know the targets that were set in 11.5 in this base case, but also ensuring we can achieve at least the minimums during a stress uh, stress scenario and um and and uh, the mix of, of assets that we have on the balance sheet we've been you know thoughtful first about the client needs through the course of 2018 uh, with an eye towards what the implication you know would be from a stress point of view as we go into a CAR cycle and the longer term planning of the business and, Ensured that we ended the year in a a place, again, that allowed for us to serve those needs but was mindful of the return necessary in light of stress losses that may be a byproduct of those types of assets. And so that's what kind of played out through uh, the scenario and through the ask that we ultimately made.
12: Very good. And Mark, can you remind us? Are they still um, implementing the operating risk capital charge for companies like yours that have exited businesses? But you're still being assessed a capital charge for those businesses, even though you're not in them.
2: Yes. Very good. Up, and up then, risk, up, 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 yeah, up risk RWA. And how, how
12: much is that for you, folks? Uh, that that is costing you in terms of capital.
2: I don't think we break that out. We haven't. We haven't broken that. Okay.
12: Is there any color, do you think, coming from the new regulatory regime to maybe give you, you and your peers, some relief
2: in this area? I don't. I don't. I don't think. I don't so. think so. I think you know, as okay. you look across, as we look across the industry peers, it's pretty consistent, and and that hasn't been contemplated. Just, just, and, and just to be clear, I think you. I think you know this, but we, you know, we're looking at, or we
3: utilize kind of a Basel three standardized as it relates to our risk weighted assets, right? That is, that is the, um, you know, the metric that, that is that is involved there.
12: Very good, and then uh, shifting over to the institutional clients group, uh, Mike, I think you touched on in in the markets area that there are some cyclical uh, factors affecting uh, you talked about this you know the quantitative easing um in terms of secular in the cash equities area did you guys see much of the midfit two changes affecting your cash equity business this uh, this quarter
2: this quarter? uh no. No, again I think that um you know over the kind of glide path of implementation we really haven't we haven't seen really, you know, many surprises and you know we, we actually went into this and continue to believe that we've got the ability as um um clients kind of rationalize the counterparties, the people that they deal with, that city's in a position to, to be a winner in that. And I think we we continue, I think as you've seen us continue to kind of climb up the tables, continue to take share there.
12: Great, and then just to tie it in, uh, can you guys give us a flavor for the investment banking pipeline? How does it look at the end of the second quarter relative to the end of the first quarter?
3: You know, I guess, again on investment banking, kind of as you as you saw in the numbers, we ended you know down ten percent, but better than uh, what I talked about at um, at Morgan Stanley. The um, you know the strength we saw. In the end, at the end of the quarter, was really a pull forward with both uh, with both some ECM activity, as well as uh, in M&A. That said, the dialogue that we have with with clients in investment banking remains strong and fully engaged, and and quite uh, quite constructive. Um, uh, and and um, you know we've seen particular strength in 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 the U.S. M&A activity. Um, continue. And so we kind of go into the balance of the year, um, um, you know, feeling good again about that dialogue, but also recognizing that all these factors that we, that we talked about uh, influences the corporate sentiment and, and, and willingness to, uh, to take action.
2: And, and George, you know, when I think of it, it it's in some ways, it's the pipelines are fine. The pipelines are in pretty good shape Uh, but what's the market willing to accept? What what can get priced on what terms? And so I think the pipelines are there. I think the question is, in what ways are the markets open to, to get those deals done?
12: Great. Thank you for the color, gentlemen. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: And presenters, do you have any closing remarks? Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. This does conclude City's
13: second quarter 2019 earnings review call. You may now disconnect.